Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we return to the prof, Howard Hendricks. In a tribute to Dr. Hendricks, Chuck Swindoll writes, No man has meant more to me in my adult life than Dr. Howard G. Hendricks. My wife Cynthia and I first met him in the fall of 1959 during my days as a first-year student at Dallas Seminary. Ultimately, I took every course he offered during my four years at DTS. His mark on me as a teacher has been etched permanently in my life and my ministry. Since I was his student, I have not prepared a message from God's Word without remembering and applying the techniques Prof taught me. Today, the Prof presents a study on why the Bible is the answer. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. What a perceptive parable of our society. We are living in a generation in which everything nailed down is coming loose, in which the things that people said could not happen are happening. And thoughtful, though unregenerate individuals are asking, where is the glue with which to reassemble the disintegrating and disarrayed parts? Eugene O'Neill makes one of his characters say it so graphically, you cannot build a marble temple out of a mixture of mud and manure. But we continue to try. Man is almost insanely committed to the proposition that he has the answers to his problems. He's forever building his little sand castles only to discover the inundating tides washing them out to sea. And then he seeks someone to blame. It was here in the city of Philadelphia some time ago that I saw an intriguing piece of graffiti scratched across the walls were these words, Humpty Dumpty was pushed. <laughs> and this forces a penetrating question in our minds. What kind of a man or a woman does it take to sustain a ministry of impact in this kind of a generation. I think I have found the answer in an ancient text. It's relevant because it's revealed. In Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10 we read, For Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of God and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgment. The Hebrew word translated prepared his heart 
is a highly instructive one. It means to do all in one's power, to make it one's aim. It was Aristotle who said, like archers, we shall stand a far greater chance of hitting the target if we can see it. <laughs> and Ezra knew that you achieve that for which you aim. That objectives always determine outcome. That a person's life needs a focus. <clears throat> I think the lifelong ambition of many an individual is to have a lifelong ambition. <laughs> a businessman sat in my office some time ago and said, Hendricks, I spent all of my life climbing the ladder of success only to discover that when I got to the top of the ladder, my ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. The tragic story of many a life. Ladies and gentlemen, I do not fear that you and I will fail. I fear that we will succeed in doing the wrong thing. As I look into the life of a man like Ezra, his experience is freighted with meaning for mine. Let's take a moment to reconstruct the historical context. It's extremely rich. Between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra, there is a 58-year time gap. What happened during that period of time? Well, if you know anything about Greek history, the battles of Thermopylae and Salamis, the most determinative battles in Grecian history, took place. But all of that is passed over by the biblical record with silence. Because the significant thing that was happening during that 58-year time gap was that God was grooming a man that he was going to use with leverage that he would use to impact his generation. And for just a few moments, I'd like to delineate the lines of Ezra's target. The contours of his commitment provide a model for our life today. In the first place, I want you to note this man's pursuit. The text says he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. He had a passion for truth. My friends, you cannot communicate out of a vacuum. You cannot impart what you do not possess. Ezra knew that God has spoken and he had not stuttered. And if God has spoken, then his task was clear. And that's to understand what God had said. That interesting verb, to seek, means to chase. It's used frequently of an animal that is in the process of starving to death, seeking its prey, and after great intensive search, it finally finds something to satisfy its physical needs. The Spirit of God picks up that very graphic figure and says, 
that should be the characteristic of your life and mine. A.W. Tozer wrote a very helpful book entitled The Knowledge of the Holy. I would encourage you to read it. And in that book he says, What God declares, the believing heart confesses without the need of further proof. Indeed, to seek proof is to admit doubt. And to obtain proof is to render faith superfluous. Everyone who possesses the gift of faith will recognize the wisdom of those daring words of one of the early church fathers. I believe that Christ died for me because it is incredible. I believe that he rose from the dead because it is impossible. Is this to dismiss scholarship as valueless in the sphere of revealed religion? By no means. The scholar has a vitally important task to perform within a carefully prescribed precinct. His task is to guarantee the purity of the text, to get as close as possible to the word as originally given. He may compare scripture with scripture until he's discovered the true meaning of the text. But right there his authority ends. He must never sit in judgment upon what is written. He dare not bring the meaning of the word before the bar of his reason. He dare not commend or condemn the word as reasonable or unreasonable, scientific or unscientific. After the meaning is discovered, that meaning judges him. Never does he judge it. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the attitude of Abraham who against all evidence waxed strong in faith. And when God said, Abram, take your son, I mean your only son, I mean the one whom you love, and offer him up for a sacrifice. Abraham never took that command to the bar of his reason. Why, I could argue all night long to God that that was a bummer decision. I could impress him, you can't do that, God. That's exactly what the pagan gods around are doing. What will this do to your reputation? Without a word of remonstrance, Abram takes his son up the mountain, and the writer to the Hebrew says it was completed action as he lifted that sword to plunge it into his son. God knew he had made the decision. Because Abraham believed that if he were to put him to death, he would have gotten him back from the grave. My friends, that's where he got him in the first place. Out of the death of his wife and the deadness of his own being. Ever occurred to you that God wanted to communicate with you in the 20th century? And he wrote a message in a book. Paul says concerning that message, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. Sir Walter Moberly wrote a book entitled The Crisis in the University, in which he leveled a tremendous charge at us as evangelicals for our lack of gospel penetration on the university campus. And in that book he made this statement. He said, if one-tenth of what you believe is true, you ought to be ten times as excited as you are. 
Did you hear what he said? He said, if you take that doctrinal statement which you affirm and reduce it to one-tenth, and that one-tenth is what you claim it to be, you ought to be ten times as excited as you are. But my friends, most of us are not excited by the truth. We're embalmed by the truth. There's a reason for that. Too many of us are under the Word of God, but we are not in it for ourselves. And being under the Word of God is no substitute for being in the Word of God. My friends, you cannot fall in love by proxy. Wherever I go, people are asking me, what's the answer to motivation? I've often said, why don't you try backing people into the Word of God? It's a lie. Do you ever back somebody into 10,000 volts of electricity? They don't turn to you and say, did you say something? <laughs> They're going to move. I never cease to be amazed at the arrogance of the human mind that somehow feels that we can prop up this word with human argumentation and convince people beyond all reasonable doubt of its intellectual veracity. I say, why don't you try to explode it in the life of people and then they will know firsthand it's a lie. Nothing can change human experience. I remember when I left Wheaties College centuries ago, <laughs> some of my quote-unquote Christian friends said, what in the world are you doing going to Dallas? Don't you know that's a glorified Bible school? <laughs> we still hear that every now and then. And you know, we plead guilty. We make no apologies. Oh, but somebody says, aren't you a group of Bible worshipers? No, we are not. We are a group of men and women who worship the living God. And when God speaks, that becomes our mandate. The words of the psalmist, we could say, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation day and night. Yes, Ezra's ministry began by preparing his mind. He knew the word, but it didn't stop there. Will you notice? He prepared his heart not only to know the law of God, but to do it. Will you mark his practice? He not only had a passion for truth, he had a passion for life. And will you note the relationship? Not knowledge alone. That leads to spiritual pride. Not experience alone. That leads to spiritual perversion. But a knowledge that transforms experience. Revealed truth producing a radical lifestyle. Why is that necessary? Because revelation, my friends, in the nature of the case, demands a response. As James put it, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Did you hear the relationship again? You cannot do it unless you have heard it. It's altogether possible to hear it and do nothing about it. 
And I feel particularly among us as evangelicals, many times we are like poor photographs, overexposed and underdeveloped. Knowledge very easily degenerates into an end in itself. I have a constant battle with the Lord. I'm always trying to impress him with how much I know about the Bible. And he never seems to be impressed. <laughs> Depressing, isn't it? My friends, how could God Almighty be impressed with what you know when everything you know is the product of what he revealed? He's always trying to impress me with how little like Jesus Christ I am. Because that's what I've been predestined to, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And biblically, to know and not to do is not to know at all. The opposite of ignorance in the spiritual realm is not knowledge, but obedience. And how wonderful to see Ezra throughout this book constantly latching on to what he understood, but translating it into his life. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I are living and ministering in a generation that's weary of words, but that is starving for reality. And it's only the word understood and obeyed that can bring reality into human experience. But there's a third mark. Not only did Ezra prepare his heart to know the truth of God and to do it, he also prepared his heart to teach, to communicate the word of God which had transformed his own life to the life of others. Do you ever ask yourself the question, what qualifies a person to communicate? Two things. A person who knows something a person who has experienced the reality of something is a person who has something worthwhile to communicate. He or she is believable. There is an integrity factor involved in the communication of the Word of God. That Hebrew word literally means to cause to learn. That means the teaching is not primarily what you do, but what others do as a result of what you do. And that verse that was flashed on the screen ought to etch itself in your mind. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same make a deposit in the life of others, teaching them in such a way that they will be equipped to teach. The implication being that they will be equipped to teach. You see, every time you teach another individual, you launch a process which ideally will never end. But I can see somebody out there at the seventh table back saying, but, you know, that's, that's true of you. You, you. you are a professor at the seminary, Dr. McGahee and some of these others. You, you teach at the Bible college, but, you know, me, I'm a layman. <laughs> yeah, I know, that's why we put this in. Because I am convinced some of the greatest teachers in our generation never bear the title. They are men and women just like yourself. 
who can communicate the reality of Jesus Christ in your lives, in the sphere of influence in which God has placed you. So wherever I go, I run into laymen, and I have a lot of fun because I love to ask them, hey, man, what's your spiritual gift? My what? <laughs> your spiritual gift. <laughs> I'm a plumber. <laughs> no, I didn't ask you what you did. I'm asking you, what is your spiritual gift? And you can see the wheels of his mind going around as he says, <laughs> what will they think up next at the seminary? So I get on a plane, I sit down next to a guy, pretty soon I get him in a good conversation, turns to spiritual things, we'll talk a little while and he'll say, hey, uh, by the way, what do you do? Well, I'm in education. Oh, that's interesting. Where do you teach? Well, I teach at the Dallas Theological Seminary. The what? Oh, <laughs> I get it. You're a preacher. <laughs> Down comes the curtain. See, Dr. Walvern and I are paid to be good. You people are good for nothing. <laughs> Super Bowl XI featured the Oakland Raiders and the Minnesota Vikings. If you saw it, it was a disaster for Minnesota. Most people tuned out of that game before it was ever finished. Few brave, committed individuals hung in there. What you may not know is that the night before Super Bowl XI, there were two born-again men who played on the Oakland team, George Beeler, Dave Rowe, now with Baltimore. They roomed together, and every night, as was their custom, they would read the word. They read that passage of scripture, the boldness may be given to us that we may speak as we ought to speak. Dave turned to George and said, hey, George, wouldn't it be fantastic if we won the Super Bowl tomorrow and CBS came into the locker room and interviewed us and one of us would have an opportunity to share our faith? So George said, well, why don't we pray about that? So they got down on their knees and they prayed that if they had an opportunity, they would be faithful. Well, if you stayed in all the way to the end and listened to the locker room show, you discovered they only talked to three individuals, one of whom was Dave Rowe. And the reporter said, hey, Dave, I'll bet this is the most exciting day in your life. And Dave said, no, as a matter of fact, it really isn't. And a poor reporter fell right into the trap. Because he said, oh, really? What would you say was the most important day? And he comes on with a clear word for Jesus Christ. Now, it's very obvious, looking over this audience, that most of you do not play for the NFL. But that's no problem. Because we now know that we've got born-again men on practically every one of the 28 teams. Seattle has seven teams who meet every week and are growing. And you know what their burden is? I'll tell you. It's to reach the NFL 
with the gospel of the grace of God. But you see, you could have missed the point. They happen to play in that league. That's their sphere of influence. Where has God placed you? Maybe in the community. Maybe in your place of employ or out there on some college or university campus where most of the kids are going to hell on a skateboard. These people are desperately interested in finding someone who's got an answer to the problems of life. Who knows something. Who has experienced something. And therefore has something to communicate. See, if you had asked me ten years ago, what's the secret of teaching, I probably would have said technique. But since you waited this long to ask me, (laughs) I wouldn't. I would say it's a passion to communicate. We had a Sunday school convention a number of years ago now in the Moody Memorial Church in the city of Chicago. A number of us were conducting workshops there, and for lunch we went across the street. In those days there was a little hamburger stand, so we stood in line. There was an elderly lady standing in front of us. She had a badge on, so we assumed she was attending the convention. I thought probably in her 60s. I learned later she was 83. So when a table opened for four, we invited her to join us. And I asked her, you know, what's the logical question? I said, Madam, I notice you are attending the Sunday school convention. She said, yes, sir, I am. And I'm enjoying it very, very much. I said, that's wonderful. What class do you teach in your church? Envisioning a class of senior citizens, sort of the geriatric crowd. (laughs) She jarred me by saying, I teach a class of junior high boys. (laughs) Uh, Junior high boys. She said, yes, sir. I said, how many boys do you have in your class? She said, about 13. I said, 13, isn't that wonderful? I suppose you come from a large Sunday school. She said, no, sir, it's, it's very small. We have about 55. And do you have 13 boys in your class? She said, yes, sir. I said, why did you attend the Sunday school convention? Well, she said, sir, this is the first time the Sunday school convention has come close enough to my home that I could afford to attend. She said, I live way up in northern Michigan. You know where that is? That's a long way north of Chicago. She said, I'm on a little pension and I've been saving my money. And I finally got enough money to buy a Greyhound bus ticket. And I've been riding all night. And I got here this morning and attended several of the workshops. And it's been so exciting. She said, I just came to the Sunday school convention to find something that would help me become a better teacher. And three guys crawled out underneath the door, 
See, I thought of all of the first-class frauds I have met across America who, if they had 13 boys and a Sunday school of 55, would have been breaking their arms, patting themselves on the back. Who, me, go to a Sunday school convention? Man, why should I go? I can tell them how to do it. You see, she tipped her hand. She had a passion to communicate. There are 84 young men in the ministry today who are the product of that one woman. We've had quite a few of them at the seminary. Did you ever think about the particular sphere in which God placed you? In this last quarter of the 20th century, when all around you, things are coming unglued. God placed you there, men and women, and this is why we're in existence as a seminary. To train men to equip you for your work of ministry. They are not called to do your work. They are gifted by God and hopefully trained well by us to build into your life because you are the front shock troops in enemy territory. The Bible is the answer. If you know it, if you are living it, and if you have a passion to communicate it, then you are a part of an increasing core of men and women who are making an impact for Jesus Christ. Welcome to the team. You've been listening to Howard Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.